0: From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're looking at the 2022 general elections. What happened, why, and what does this mean for the next couple of years? Later on the show, my colleague Kelly Kinoyer and I will sit down with two people who ran campaigns here in New Hanover County, one Republican, one Democratic, and we'll get their point of view on what these races looked like and the political landscape from a boots on ground perspective. But first, we wanna talk about the New Hanover County School Board, where the Republican Party swept all four seats with three challengers and one incumbent, giving the GOP a 5-2 majority on the board. The school board race was intense to say the very least, and with the exception of abortion, these issues were some of the most passionate and divisive in the 2022 campaign. So to help me unpack all of this, I'm here with my colleague, Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being with us. Thank you. All right. So before we get into the school board results and what that means for the next couple of years, let's talk about voter turnout a little bit, because I think that gave us an early sense of how this was going to go.
1: That's right. New Hanover County in 2018, 52% of the voting population turned out. And this year so far for this midterm election, only 51%. That could be bumped a little bit after Canvas, but... It went down slightly and the early voting numbers showed that, too.
0: Yeah. And we've seen that actually a higher number of Republican voters came out this year versus 2018, but a actually slightly smaller percentage of Republican voters. But still, those early voting numbers gave us a sense that historically, and you've reported on this, You know, Republicans tend to favor Election Day. That's right. So based on their early voting turnouts, we knew that there was going to be a strong showing of Republican or conservative-minded voters.
1: Right. And the Democratic early voting numbers, I mean, it dropped from 2018 to this year. And people were saying, I wonder what's going on. There's so many reasons to turn out, but— Not as not as much as 2018.
0: Yeah. And as we'll hear later in the show, um, you know, there was a number of really polarizing and motivating issues on the ballot, both at the state level, namely abortion after the Dobbs decision for the Supreme Court and here locally about the school board. The school board motivated liberal and conservative voters. And it just seems for the Democratic Party, it didn't quite translate into the votes. So lots more to say about that. We have other reporting. We'll have links on the page about sort of how that all played out. But now we have a Republican majority. It's a a 5-2 majority on the New Hanover County Board of Education. Uh, I know there's been some questions about where Stephanie Craybill, current chair, stands. She was censured by the Republican Party. That's right. And doesn't appear to quite be a piece of the current block of candidates. But she is a Republican. But even if she were to vote against this block, these four new candidates, so this is Pat Bradford, uh, incumbent Pete Wilderbor, who was appointed two years ago and now has won re-election, and uh, Josie Barnhart and Melissa Mason, these four candidates who did run on a slate together can make policy. They have a majority vote, and there are no supermajority requirements on the Board of Education. So what does this mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, we are seeing that Republicans have been energized by these school board races and school board issues. I mean, this is the reason why Political pundits attribute to Glenn Youngkin winning the Virginia governor's race was because of people being upset about so-called biased teaching and critical race theory in the schools. I mean, I saw at these call to the audiences over the past two years, people so upset with masking and the pandemic and backlash against racial reckoning, again, targeting so-called biased teaching. And I'm not saying that all the call to the audience was about that, but I mean, they came out in numbers. You know, the group right now, Moms for Liberty, other types of conservative leaning groups. I mean, they came out and really pressured the
0: old board on they, these issues. They were consistent and, and vocal. Yeah. They were. So, again, now that we are looking at this Republican supermajority, I believe our reporter Grace Vitaioni spoke with Pete uh, Wilderbor and Josie Barnhart after the election. So here was sort of their initial reactions. And then we'll get into a little more of the policy stuff that could come after the win. But here's Pete Wilderbor.
1: I think we need to get the board working as a a cohesive unit. That's my number one thing. I mean, student safety has got to be paramount. Uh, We we had a a school shooting just a year ago, so that's one of the things. I've actually pushed uh, for the superintendent to have a goal in that area, so I would continue to do that. And, of course, uh, academics. It should be all about
0: academics and students doing well. We have 13 schools that have not quite made the, the measure, so we need to get all the schools doing a great job. And I think we can.
1: So there you go. He's mentioning the state accountability grades. Yes, combined, New Hanover County Schools had a total of 13 schools with D and Fs. And you hear Pete echoing the larger Republican strategy, which is be tough on crime. Talk about going back to the basics instead of talking about extraneous things that aren't germane to learning.
0: Yeah, we also uh, spoke to Josie Barnhart, so here's what uh, here's what Josie had to say.
2: Collectively, when you're talking about a group of individuals, which is what we are as the Board of Education, seven of us, four of us are going to have to come together for any sort of consensus to be passed. And so that, to me, is going to be the biggest thing, is opening dialogue rather than closing off doors because ultimately we all want our staff and our students to be successful here in the county.
0: So... Yes, dialogue is good. Consensus is good. But again, politically, these four candidates who just won can run the New Hanover County, New Hanover County School Board. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that Pete Wildeboer told me jokingly, but I don't think quite jokingly, yeah. that he, he saw himself as being chair. And so a board led by Wildeboer could make a lot of policy decisions. I think we should talk about some of those decisions. You know, right up at the top, I think a lot of people have talked about how this Election will impact Charles Faust, the superintendent. I mean, Wilderboer mentioned it. Wilderboer was a bit more nuanced in his approach to Faust saying, you know, he wanted him to improve, to give him more clear goals, which hasn't been done in the past. Melissa Mason had something a little different to say.
1: Yeah, she said she would work to outright fire him. So we have a board now who are going to be pressuring him to do what they're asking.
0: Yeah, do we think Faust will be fired on day one when the new board is set in December? Probably not, but I I do think you're right. I think he will be under pressure. So let's talk about some of the other policies that I think this new board will be reviewing. It's hard to think of something that has been more contentious than this sort of nexus of DEI or diversity, inclusivity, and, uh, and equity and social-emotional learning, or SEL, and critical race theory, uh, CRT. And we'll add our tireless caveat that CRT is not being taught in the school, but certainly, I think, concerns about how history is being taught, what subjects are being taught. Um, So these three things, these acronyms, where do you think we're going to go on these?
1: I mean, consistently, all four of these candidates have been outright against these initiatives, or they are very skeptical of them. And Pete Wilderbor used to be the one in the room that say, I don't know about this. Do we need to do this? What do you mean by diversity? Or is this being taught critical race theory? And now there are going to be a plethora of voices asking the school staff about this. And SEL and social emotional learning. There are people in the district that work on this. The same thing with they just hired Malcolm Johnson as the newest DEI officer, and he actually is part of the superintendent's upper administration. So will they push some of this staff out? We don't know yet.
0: Yeah, but I can certainly say these are things we have heard members of the audience ask for to get rid of these efforts. And I think this board will at the very least be debating and talking about those calls. Whereas in the past, I think the board had sort of just said, no, this is where we're going. We're doing these things. I also want to talk about the back to basics. This is something that Pat Bradford hammered repeatedly. Melissa Mason also repeatedly spoke about this. What does this back to basics mean?
1: Yeah. And this fits into the diversity, equity and inclusion and SEL conversation that teachers are somehow not focusing on academics, but focusing on so-called fluffy things that don't really help them on standardized tests or being successful in the workforce. So they are saying, we need to get students to read again, to be better at these tests, to not do all these other initiatives working on the whole student that a lot of educational experts want the education system to go on. It's saying, no, I think we want to focus on success in reading and math because that's what we're judged on, ultimately. And the state is re-looking at these report cards and how they're judged. But 80% of the judgment comes from these standardized tests.
0: Yeah, and I think there there is a real debate there. And you had some good reporting on what social emotional learning is in the district, how it's being rolled out, and the argument for it, because it is not part of the classic educational curriculum. Right. But the argument is that without... Basically, the training to how to be an emotionally well-balanced human being, you've got a lot of disruption going on in the classroom, and the disruption is preventing you from learning your reading, writing, arithmetic, and civics.
1: That's so, right. And then they're going back to, this is the parent's job. It's not the teacher's job to be doing these things. Yeah. And again, all four of these candidates are pushing to give parents more of a say over curriculum and what their students are doing and maybe that they can opt out of things that they find questionable.
0: Yeah. So this is kind of a change. I mean, this this obviously these ideas are evolving and we've watched them evolve over the election cycle between the primary and the general election. So a lot of these conversations started as parental involvement. And this we saw issues like surveys. There was a Title IX survey. There were issues about like whether or not kids would mask, whether or not kids would go back to school, how the hybrid stuff, the higher education program would be rolled out. And it then started adding things like because kids were at home, parents were seeing what they were learning. Parents wanted more access to the curriculum. Again, any parent who wants to know this stuff, it's pretty easy to find out. You're a parent and you were a teacher, so you can tell people.
1: I mean, it's on the Department of Public Instruction. Everybody's supposed to follow the standard course of study. Teachers have to publish what they're doing, usually on an online classroom. I mean, you are pressured at a teacher in the 21st century to give your students, every opportunity to be successful. And that is linking to what you're learning. Here's where the assignments are. I mean, everything is very transparent from my understanding.
0: Yeah. And but so we've gone past that concern about a desire for transparency, which I think is totally fair. um, Sure. To a concern about parents actually having some involvement or control over what is happening in the classroom. There's a difference between parents knowing what's happening in the classroom and parents saying what's going on in the classroom. And that's where we're talking about this opt-out idea. So you you had to look at this issue too.
1: Yes, and from reporting from Port City Daily, Josie Barnhart was who was just elected. She said, quote, I support the process for parents to be able to opt their children out of lessons that go against religious views. I also support parents being able to challenge curricula that are being used. So for example, I've been hearing from teachers, would they be able to tell the science teacher, don't teach my child evolution? How far are they willing to go? And then a lot of these surveys, for example, recently, they just decided to have middle school parents opt in into a sex education, but for now, high school is opt out. And Pete, last time they had this discussion said, why can't we just have that for high school? But it sounded like from the school staff, that the state is recommending that high school students do need some understanding of sexual education at that point.
0: Yeah, so I think what we're seeing here is two different ideas. One is parents' ability to selectively remove their child from certain parts of the curriculum, and the other part is challenging the curriculum itself, and there we've got the Scopes Monkey trial all over again. Yes. So I think there's there's varying degrees of what this parental control, which is what a lot of these candidates ran on, would yes. actually look like.
1: And I will be honest with you, when I was a teacher at one point, if a parent found a book questionable, I would have to give them an alternative assignment. I mean, I think teachers are already doing this, but there's going to be more pressure to be more transparent and allowing parents to select. Maybe they're not reading that book in class.
0: Yeah. And I think there will be one thing we will see. And I think this is fair to say because we would see it with any transition between candidates and actual elected officials. And three of these people have not been on the board before. So it is one thing to campaign on an issue. It is totally fine to say things that resonate with the people you hope to represent. But then when you get elected, you have to make policy that works. So having a system where parents can have more control, that is what they ran on. But having a system that doesn't completely devolve into chaos may be trickier than they might have imagined.
1: And this is what Craybill said last time that the board was having a problem with who is in control of the school system. And there was this debate. Is it the board? Is it the superintendent? I mean, the board is over the superintendent, but then the superintendent leads the school system. And do they trust him to do that or not?
0: Yeah, so a couple of the questions I want to get to with a couple of minutes we have left. One of the things I definitely believe this new board will look at is the, specifically the trans middle school sports team policy.
1: Yes, Pete Will boer and Hugh McManus voted against keeping this policy in place. And so they might take it up again because now they have the votes to say that this isn't appropriate because this is not how high school does it. So that policy might be going away.
0: Yeah, and I know there are broader concerns about how marginalized students of all types, whether that's race, gender or sexual identity, will be treated by this new board. I know there is some real emotion there. All I say is give the board a chance and see what happens, but it's certainly something we'll be covering closely.
1: Yes. And I did talk to the current vice chair, Stephanie Walker, and she said that she is worried about these marginalized students and she's also going to be making sure that they feel comfortable in the school system.
0: Yeah. So there's been a lot made by these candidates and those who oppose them about what they will basically take away. Talk about removing SEL and CRT and DEI from the school, but they still need to actually create stuff and do stuff. So the the positive things like, for example, one of the number one issues over the last two years, and this is staff pay.
1: Yes. So we saw last year that Pete Wildeboer, he was very vocal about getting classified staff up to $17. Can he do it this year now that the Republican board has flipped and so has the county commission? Will they be able to negotiate better for higher pay for the district's staff?
0: I mean, one thing I will say is that the, and I think it's fair to call it dysfunction, the dysfunction on the school board and when you had multiple candidates going basically behind each other's backs to the board of commissioners to ask to make varying asks for support for staff pay, for example, caused a lot of friction. I mean, yes. it was you know, the chair Julia olson Bozeman openly said, you know, this is dysfunctional. This is not the way we're supposed to have this relationship. So. For whatever you think of the board's makeup, a more organized and more cohesive board might move through that process more easily. We'll see. So the last thing I want to ask about, and this is something that was a big part of a lot of these candidates' campaign, and especially Melissa Mason and, um, and Pat Bradford. And that is the case, the civil case, filed by the survivors of Michael Earl Kelly and Peter Michael Frank. I believe Pat Bradford was, was pretty pointed on this issue.
1: Yeah. I mean, she was saying to the board, pay them, pay them and settle and figure this out because they were wronged by these teachers in the school district and they're owed something. So will they end up settling? Will they go to trial? We don't know because there was an actual, there were actual two teachers that were grooming kids. And will they stand behind making sure that the survivors are treated equitably and fairly?
0: Yeah. I mean, All I can say is that in 2018, this was also a motivational issue. This is the the groundswell support for Judy justice started with her saying that she would make the board more accountable and more transparent and would do justice to these victims. And I think she tried, but I think it is a lot harder than people think. I think once they get involved in the actual legal process. There's a lot you can say and less you can do.
1: That's right, because now they are the board that is being sued. So what are they going to do?
0: Yeah, well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, Rachel Keith, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ben. Okay, well, we need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with my colleague Kelly Knoyer and two people working in the trenches of the 2022 campaigns here in New Hanover County. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman here with my colleague Kelly Kenoyer, and we're going to take a look at the boots on ground viewpoint of the 2022 election. Kelly, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you. We brought in two analysts, one from each political party, to kind of hear how things went in this election cycle.
0: All right. Well, let's have our analysts uh, introduce themselves. Well, I'm Chase Horton,
3: and uh, I ran Michael Lee's campaign in 2020 and this year in 2022. I'm Carter
4: Jewell. I was Amy Block Deloach's campaign manager for State House, and I'm a political consultant.
2: Uh, let's start with the uh, county commission race. Uh, I know both of you follow local politics pretty closely. So, how do you feel about the candidates that were put forward? Because um, I think that what we were seeing was a really strong and experienced candidate on each side of the political aisle, and then somebody with a lot less experience coming forward. In Tom Toby's case, very much a populist candidate. Uh, and in Travis Robinson, I mean, he's run for a couple different things in town. So, do you feel like your party put enough effort into finding good candidates for the county commission race?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, we had the we had the primary, so the voters the voters picked um, the top top two candidates for the race, and they brought different things to the table. I think uh, Leanne and, and Tom were were pretty almost polar opposites, which was interesting. And Tom got first place in the Republican primary, if you remember, um, and. I wasn't shocked by that, uh, but I I thought Leanne would be the stronger candidate in the general, and I I was pretty confident. Even I, I told her after the primary, I said you're going to get first place in the general election. Um, so they brought different things to the table, and I think that's a good thing. Um, I think Tom maybe even helped Leanne more uh, in bringing some voters out that that you know maybe wouldn't. So
4: I think mentioning the primary is a really good point because I think we obviously had a lot of drama around one of our primary candidates and um, I'd be interested to see you know what would have happened with maybe different candidates um, who were not actively in the spotlight at the time. Um, I think Travis is a great guy. He certainly is at every event um, but he's a very behind the scenes you know helping the community and so I think that it was, we had very, two very different candidates. um, And I think Rob was a little more suited for the position.
0: Carter, you mentioned the person who was in the spotlight. I'm assuming you're talking about...
4: Julia uh, Bozeman.
0: Yeah, Julia Olson Bozeman. Having a presence like that and also having her switch parties, do you think that helped or hurt either party?
4: Honestly, I feel like in the primary, there were so many not Julia voters that no one really minded when she switched parties. I mean, my opinion is... At that point, she'd made her bed. I don't know how the Republicans feel about it, but I think we all were kind of like, all right, this is just the next thing in this wild saga.
3: Well, the county Republican Party disavowed the the switch, um, whatever that really means. But, you know, anybody's welcome to join it. But and she didn't obviously play an active role in, any, in anything. So,
0: My other question about the county commission race was that it seemed— more moderate than the school board race. Certainly there were people further on the left and further on the right on the school board than there were for a county commission. Why do you think that might be?
3: Well, I think you had a, a mix of, of both as well in the school board race, to be honest. People like Josie Barnhart, Pete Wilderboer, and then you had people like um, Veronica and um, Nelson. So I really think it was was much of the same as the county commission where you had a mix of of all different flavors, to be honest. And I, I think uh, I, I was shocked, to be honest with you, that, that all four Republicans got through. That was the only surprise of the night for me was that all four Republicans won. I really thought that there would be one Democrat, two at most, but maybe one uh, that would get through. So that, that was the biggest shock for me.
4: Well, and with, with the county commission and that point, you know, I think – The issues are obviously so different, but I think this year we really saw that in terms of the school board topics have become very polarized. Whereas the county issues, while incredibly important, for whatever reason, have not been as polarizing to voters this year. We needed candidates who could grow in an effective way. We're tired of the traffic. Um, We need better transportation. But for the most part, those issues were not as polarizing as, say, um, banning books or what we're teaching in the classroom. That seemed to be the thing that really could rile people up, and I think create more polarizing candidates.
0: Certainly, yeah. The um, the suggestion that there's pornography in an elementary school library is going to be more incendiary than a debate over fiscal policy <laughs> at the county level. I think that I think that's a fair point.
4: And people yeah. play. It, plays to people more. That's what they get riled up about. Nobody's, for the most part, paying attention to what's happening at the county level when you can uh, hear the, the small talking points about the schools.
2: I think for me, I was a little surprised to see such a sweep there but not see that necessarily show up across the entirety of the ballot the same way like i would expect in the county to see that cause a republican sweep in the commission race as well or something along those lines but that's not what we saw here um do you think there were people who showed up to vote who were extraordinarily focused on the school board and didn't necessarily go down ballot on other races in the county
3: no i think that's right and north carolina has probably more swing voters than Pretty much every other state um, and split ticket, excuse me. And I think, uh, as Carter said, the those issues were more were more polarized in the school board race, and and that those school board races really across the country mirrored the the national debate over that stuff. County commission, it's very local issues. People were very excited uh, about the school board races and made that a priority. Um, and like I said, it, it really got. That was a nationally driven uh, race across the country, just with all the the issues, the perceived issues um, around the country.
2: I think that that is something that we've seen lead to success. Um, for example, with the state house, Nash, uh, taking national issues and localizing them um, seems to be something, or national discussions. Uh, and localizing them seems to be something that's a winning strategy on both sides. So, if we talk about abortion, for instance, when it comes to the state house, there were a lot of hopes on the Republican side that there would be a supermajority, and that did not materialize in this race. Um, very close, though. It was very close. Um, so, do you think that uh, talking about abortion was helping the Democrats in this case?
4: I feel like it was. Um, one, you know, you'd, you'd asked us to talk about kind of what went wrong, and I think. In my mind, the biggest issue is not that we can point to any one thing, any one talking point or group or any one issue and say, there's where we failed. But to instead, I think, look at the fact that many of us were so outraged at the thought of becoming another state. I mean, I think of looking at the nice map I saw (laughs) that terrified us of you know, North Carolina being like the only state in the South left where women could have abortions. And so for me, a lot of this election was picturing this map and thinking, we cannot lose this state. Women are already driving from Texas to North Carolina. We cannot lose. But I think a lot of us thought that that outrage and that worry would convert to votes. And that, unfortunately, is something that I mean, yes, we did avoid the supermajority. But as somebody that doesn't really like to sweat, we didn't avoid it quite enough. I mean, we did we, we, we achieved that purpose. But boy, oh boy, I wish we had made it a little easier for those of us following along at home to feel confident.
0: Yeah. Chase, I'll ask you, because there was, you know, after the Dobbs decision, there was a lot of conversations about how state level Republicans would handle this. Because on the one hand, it could bring Democrats out to the poll. On the other hand, it's long been an important issue for conservative voters. Your candidate, Michael Lee, um, you know, put abortion front and center in a lot of his you know, campaign messaging. Do you think that helped or, or hurt the campaign?
3: Well, we had to talk about it because the Democrats made it their number one issue. Um, it was really the only thing they had. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, these races were extremely competitive because of that issue alone, I believe. And so we had to talk about it. But Senator Berger has been clear. Um, he actually agrees with Michael's position. Michael had that p- position publicly first. So, you know, for us, the, the Dobbs decision, although it had, had been a um, priority of the pro-life movement for a long time, I think uh, politically it, it hurt us this year because the, the Democrats made it the number one issue on their side. Uh, But we knew that it wasn't polling as the number one issue. Uh, The economy was more important. So we were confident that it was not a uh, majority uh, issue that would put them over the top. So although it did make the races very competitive, we won by 2,110 votes, Ted Davis won by 1,000 votes, and Deb Butler won by uh, 2,000, some change, I believe, um, 6%. But I think it did make the races much more competitive.
2: I mean, I think, uh, if I recall correctly, it was either Berger or Moore who said this, but immediately after the Dobbs decision, one of them put out a press release that essentially said, come January, we are going to follow suit. That was Speaker Tim Moore. It was Speaker Tim Moore. And I, I kind of wonder if following that seeing all of the enthusiasm that led to on the left if uh, you feel like that might have been a misstep
3: uh yeah I think it was um, there there's not support for uh, what speaker Moore wants to do on that issue uh there's there's much more support and you even saw um, Ted Davis he said 20 weeks is the law and, that, and that's what I want uh, John Hennett believes uh, or agrees with um with Michael's position at 12 weeks. So uh, a lot of republicans uh, running for office they were they were clear that that they did not support anything less than the first trimester. Um and so I I think that was a, a misstep probably um because that that doesn't reflect the the majority of the republicans in the general assembly.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I I definitely think that was something that was at the back of a lot of people's minds throughout the campaign season.
0: Yeah, and I I was also curious if you—I mean, this is inside baseball a little bit, but did your campaign get any pushback from local voters who felt like maybe Michael was too moderate? (laughs) Um, And certainly, just for the record, certainly some liberals would not consider him moderate, but I think in the conservative circles he's positioned himself as moderate.
3: Sure. I mean, when you look at the the just national polling— you see that most people, most people, a majority agree that somewhere between the 12 and 20 week uh, time period is um, reasonable. And then you have a percentage of people, let's say 20% of people that think that it should be uh, allowed at any time with no restrictions. Then you have even less that think that it should be banned from conception. So although in, in you know, one-on-one conversations people would say well look i'm I'm pro-life and uh and i think that that abortion shouldn't be allowed that's certainly not a majority opinion and and we we did get some people talking to that talking to us about that but that didn't stop them from voting for uh, michael because the other side our our opponent was very clear that no, no restrictions uh, at, at any point, and which is really, in my opinion, out, out of the mainstream as opposed to ours, which was, I think, well within the mainstream. So it didn't cause Republicans to revolt and not vote for, for Michael.
0: All right. Well, we need to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more with my colleague Kelly Kenoyer and our guests Chase Horton and Carter Jewell. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman here with my colleague Kelly Knoyer and our guests Chase Horton and Carter Jewell, who both worked boots on ground running campaigns for the Republican and Democratic Party, respectively. Another question I wanted to ask about the Lee versus Morgan campaign. I'm curious how both of you think about this, Uh, Carl. I'll start with you. A lot of money went into this race. I mean, is is that helping the conversation? Is that helping the democratic process?
4: Personally, not at all. Uh, I, I believe we're spending way too much money on these races. Um, but, you know, from our perspective, we know there's going to be money spent. And until someone else says we're not spending money, uh, unfortunately, we've got to raise because we know the other side is raising and, uh, and doing it a lot faster than we are.
3: Well, you know, yes, a lot of money was spent uh, between the candidates over three million dollars. And then that's not even including the outside groups uh, like Majority Rising that just pummeled for two months on air uh, in Planned Parenthood that was spending a lot of money, digital and, um, and in mailers and, and all that. So at one point, to put this into perspective, a competitive state Senate race in your Hanover County, you're, you're looking at probably spending $50,000 a week on TV. The Democrats this time were spending over two hundred thousand dollars a week on TV, and now they had a lot of ground to make up. You know, this we had we had three opponents this year. Um, the first one that was going to run, um, he got everything ready to run, then then actually ended up deciding not to. Then we had Minnicozy. Then we had Martian. Martian got a late start, um, and you know the the polling had us at a very comfortable place. So they had to spend a ton of money to make it competitive, and they did. And then, you know, as it got more competitive, we had to ramp up our spending. So that's how it went. Um, You know, I agree with Carter somewhat uh, that we are spending a a ton of money, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for the democratic process. It, It is when... When ads are – like I said, they, they, it, the abortion was the number one issue, and the ads on that topic against Michael just were not accurate at all. It was not an accurate representation of his position. So I don't think that's good uh, because we were very clear. It's not like we were hiding anything. We were very clear about his position. And, and, the, and the governor even cut an ad um, lying about Michael's position even though we had been very clear um, what it was publicly
4: with regards to the abortion stance, I just want to say, you know it's it's convenient that by the end of this race, the Republicans all were kind of on the same page with, yeah, we'd like abortion, we think that's great. But this seems more like policy that followed polling rather than an actual true belief from the beginning because you wouldn't have statements like, we're getting rid of it in North Carolina in January um, if he didn't have some party support. We wouldn't have, you know, we we know (laughs) Ted Davis's previous stance because it was if the women wouldn't have the sex, then they wouldn't need this. And so, you know, it's convenient that now everybody says, oh, well, we're very moderate and tempered about this. But, you know, to act like it wasn't purely following polling and realizing that you were going to get a difficult outcome if you didn't adjust, I feel like is being a little naive about it.
3: Well, I think there are, in both parties, there are varying views on on that issue. I mean, you saw Deb Butler come out and say, I think we should stay with 20 weeks. So it's not, it's not, this was what Michael was talking about with the extremes. And those those don't represent a majority. And that's what he was talking about finding common ground because the two extremes are not representative of most people. And I think that's also true with the elected officials.
2: So when it comes to the legislature, what we saw in this region was everybody stayed in the position they were already in. Um, all of the incumbents won. Do you have any analysis on that? Uh, and obviously, some of you were hoping for a different outcome. Um, but do you, do you think that that speaks at all to the, the role of money in politics, the role of name recognition? What's your thoughts on that?
4: I feel like, I mean, we know that incumbents do typically have a little bit of an advantage. But I feel it would be unfair to our incumbents to simply write it off as such. Um, We have strong incumbents with strong followings. People like them. Um, You know, we obviously really wanted Amy to win. And a lot of folks have complained about Ted. But there are a lot of folks that like him. A lot of folks really like Deb Butler, feel like she's doing a great job. Again, people can complain there, but, you know, we we have incumbents that for the most part people like. And so I I don't think it is just because they are incumbents. I think it's because they are effective in their positions, at the very least, in getting people to think they're effective in their positions.
3: Well, I think we saw a lot of that um, on Tuesday nationally as far as incumbents winning, which was kind of interesting when you have over 70 percent of the country thinks that we're on the wrong track yet incumbents are winning but i think the good thing for here is that we had three competitive state legislative races obviously michael was the incumbent he won by a little over two percent which was more than he won uh against harper in 2020 um but ted davis that was a very close race with amy and then even in uh, deb butler's race which that was Probably the least competitive race by the numbers, um, Go, I mean, by the, how the district is drawn. Uh, but John made her spend money and work. And competitive elections are a good thing um, for us. And that's one of the things I love about Hanover County is we have very competitive elections. And that is a good thing uh, for our politics and um, for the people here.
2: Um. You mentioned redistricting, or you mentioned districts. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about redistricting. Uh, how do you think this will go in future elections, particularly since we've now seen the Supreme Court at the state level flip to the Republicans?
4: I'll tell you what. I mean, with when it comes to a typical race, folks usually think, you know, maybe I'll run for office in a few years the very least, they normally have about a year to think, okay, well, this time next November, hopefully I'll be on the ballot. But with the redistricting this year, particularly in Amy's district, she didn't know she was going to be on the ballot. She Not only was she not looking at a run, but, you know, we didn't even think the district was competitive until right before time to file. and um, And then I came on in June, and we had about five months to do our best, and so I think we did a darn good job for that. But uh, it is—it is it is really—I'm glad for the redistricting. They obviously needed it, and arguably the districts are still pretty wonky, but um, gosh, I hope they <laughs> don't do it again right before time to file because from a perspective of wanting to have candidates who— are ready to go. Um, you know, you mentioned the congressional races and then the person before Minicosi and that it was just a nightmare trying to figure out, okay, who's where, who's running, where can they run? That's a whole lot.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, any Senate district in, in New Hanover County is going to be competitive. Um, now New Hanover County has too many people for one district so it has to have two senators that that represent at least part of it. Um, these maps that that the Senate the, the Senate got a supermajority in with thirty seats. These were maps that were approved by the um, Supreme Court with a Democrat majority. So I think the Senate maps were 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 fair and good. Um, and in, in the House, th- those maps as well. Now, they came up one short of a supermajority. Uh, I have no idea. I can't predict the future, so I don't know what redistricting is going to look like and even if they're going to be able to uh, redistrict the um, state House and state Senate. I, th- I think they will be able to do congressional. Um, I'm pretty sure, uh, but there's no telling what's going to happen. But I just will say from, from my perspective – The more competitive races, uh, the better for us. Um, It it brings out the the best uh, candidates and, I think, the best outcomes.
0: How do you guys feel about turnout? Uh, You know, this being a midterm election, we're kind of on par with 2018.
4: So we had predicted and projected and planned for about the same number of turnout total, um, but we fell short— in certain areas. Um, We really expected more young people to get involved and they just didn't this year. Um, There were uh, several precincts that just didn't turn out and I think that comes down to engagement and how the parties are engaging folks, not just in November, but in the rest of the year as well. And um, that was a real lesson for us because You know, typically you might have a candidate and you'll say, okay, you need to knock this many doors, you need to make this many phone calls, and if they don't do it, then you can kind of point to that. My candidate knocked every door and then some, made all the phone calls, raised all the money she was supposed to, but um, unfortunately sometimes that engagement piece is just not there. I think we failed to engage young people as much as we could have. We failed to engage African-American voters as much as we could have, and... um, came down to, you know, 900 votes.
2: I want to ask a bit about um, how you feel about your larger party, both at the county level and at the state level. Um, Do you feel like your party has been supportive of local candidates and effective at organizing volunteers and getting door knocking going? Um, Or would you like to see more support in future years um, or some shift in strategy?
3: So uh, I cannot say enough about the New Hanover County Republican Party, um, and, and the chairman, Will Connect, has done a great job in the three years that he's been the chairman. We are more organized uh, than we've ever been, and the support for the candidates was just incredible. The volunteers were really, really uh, excited and, and enthusiastic about knocking on doors which is not something that the county party Now we did this in 2020 uh, a little differently but that was of course during covid so it was all different it was a different thing then but the amount of doors that were knocked countywide by the county party and then also by the ncgop that that uh, came down here uh, and led those efforts as well the the support for the candidates and the organization and the ground game was just incredibly strong um and i can't say Enough good things about it up and down the ballot. You know, a lot. We had a Senate race, a U.S. Senate race, <clears throat> and a lot of times that those federal level races really take all of the uh, the airtime and, and the attention of volunteers. But what we saw this time was it was almost bottom up, and I, I, and I don't mean that literally from the school board. Even though there were a lot of people that were concerned about the school board and very enthusiastic about it, uh, the local races. Really took the precedent, uh, precedent. Excuse me, of um, uh, over the federal races, and I think that was a great thing for you know Michael and the legislative races, state legislative races, and, and the the candidates locally here.
2: Carter, I'd love to hear your take on this for the Democratic Party.
4: Yeah, I mean, I feel like we we have some great volunteers, we have some great activists, um, and it's it's just that engagement piece. I think again the fact that. So many of us were upset and so many folks kept saying, this is such an important race. And I'd say, will you knock on a door with us? <laughs> and um, I think it's just that engagement piece of knowing that us being upset will not translate to the votes that we need. Um, and we were going against a lot of misinformation and a lot of lies. I mean, when you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent saying somebody wants to legalize meth, Um <laughs> No, they didn't, and, uh, and it's hard when you've got those sound bites like that to to say not only no, but here is our messaging. Um, it's we weren't as great with those engagement over the the sound bites this year.
2: All right. Well, thank you both so much for uh, joining us for this newsroom. Uh, really interesting to hear your analysis of this race.
4: Thank you very much for having us.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Carter Jewel, Chase Horton. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. All right. Well, before we go, we have to say at least something about the transit tax. This was the quarter cent uh, transportation sales tax that was on the
2: ballot. Yeah. This is our post post postmortem for the transit tax, which failed uh, on this ballot initiative. I think it went down by six percent.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the the sort of truism of results watching is that liberal issues and Democrat candidates usually come in very strong after early voting. And then they lose ground over the course of the night as election day precincts, which favors Republican candidates, rolls in. So we knew this was probably dead on arrival when we saw that right when early voting numbers dropped, it was already um, a majority of the votes were against the sales tax. And again, if you if you weren't paying attention, this was you know a for every hundred dollars you spend, you would you would spend an extra twenty five cents, so a quarter on a hundred dollars, not a quarter on a dollar tax. Certain things would be uh, exempt from this, so not gasoline, not medication, not groceries. Um, One of the benefits would be that this was uh, a tax that would be shared with tourists, so people coming to visit mostly in the summer months would also be putting money into the system. And I believe it would have raised the combined sales tax rate from 7 to 725. Yep. And it would have generated a lot of money.
2: It would have generated uh, 12 million to $14 million a year into the foreseeable future. It would have stabilized wave transits funding, which they're heading towards a fiscal cliff now. Uh, they'll go from $11 million in annual budget to $7 million in a couple of years, and they're not quite sure how they're going to fill that gap now. It also would have gone to uh, new trails and pedestrian infrastructure and to rail realignment, which a lot of people think was a tactical misfire to put rail realignment on this ballot. Um, because a lot of people don't understand what it is. It takes a lot of explaining. Basically, rail realignment is that they want to move the train over to the other side of the river to stop uh, traffic from being halted by the by the rails. Uh, But it's like a very long term project. They would just need to start getting money for it. And I've heard that when people tried to explain this tax to the Democratic Party, for example, um, they were pretty opposed to the rail realignment aspect of it. So this was dead on arrival, partially because of some tactical misfires. Maybe it was just a bad year to bring a tax onto the ballot, especially after the county already has raised taxes. so yeah, it, it failed.
0: Yeah. And one thing I will say is that there was not a concerted uh, opposition movement against this tax. It's something actually we would have heard rumblings about. We certainly expected it if a if the $50 million housing bond had gone forward. Um, and that's something you see in almost any you know municipality or county when there's a large bond or tax increase. But this time there wasn't one. And I think what's really notable about this is that it failed even without uh, organized opposition.
2: Well, it didn't have a lot of organized uh, approval of it either. Um, There wasn't a lot of money going into that race. Uh, There were no advertisements. There was no PAC that was pushing the quarter cent sales tax, which we probably would have seen for the housing bond. And perhaps the folks who had pushed the housing bond would have jumped on the quarter cent sales tax as well if they'd both gone on the ballot together. It's hard to say. I will say housing bonds in other cities have almost universally passed with upwards of 60 percent of the vote. So they tend to be very popular in other places and they tend to bring out voters.
0: Yeah, I think the last couple in Raleigh actually had higher than that, 70 or 80 percent.
2: Yeah, I mean, even Fayetteville, it was above 60 percent. So it doesn't seem to matter how conservative or liberal a given town is. Uh, People are pushing for housing in North Carolina. Not a single housing ballot uh, housing bond that's gone on the ballot in North Carolina has failed.
0: Yeah, well, last note on this, I will give the county staff at New Hanover County credit for this. They put a lot of work into doing the best they could and getting the message out.
2: And the staff of WAVE also fought very hard, especially Executive Director Marie Parker. So uh, it was a good effort, but didn't work.
0: All right, well, that's just about all the time we have. Kelly Knoyer, thanks so much for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, well, thanks to our guests today, Chase Horton and Carter Jewell. Thanks to my colleagues, Kelly Kinoyer and Rachel Keith, and of course, the WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org or find it as a podcast, pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have questions or comments or concerns or ideas for a future show, you can reach us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.